0: Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, November 7th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska.
1: And I'm Guy Ero. This week, we're taking a step back in time talking about a really ancient fish, a really cool fish, the Pacific lamprey.
0: We're kicking off Indigenous Peoples Month with two very special guests. We've got Kelly Coates with the Cal Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians. She's also the tribal co-chair of the Pacific Lamprey Conservation Initiative. And we've got Jeremy Fivecrows, who's with the Nez Perce Tribe and also works for the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. So very warm welcome to you two.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you. So we've talked about lamprey on this show before a couple of times, most recently about the sea lamprey, which is native and important to the East Coast, but not to the Great Lakes where it's invasive. And Guy always gets a little antsy when we cover similar fishes because there's so many cool fish out there. It's going to take a lifetime to cover all the fish. And he's got this giant complex fish nerd spreadsheet that I wish y'all could see. That said, we know we can cover the same or similar species multiple times and always gain a new perspective through the guests that we bring on. So we are very excited to cover the Pacific lamprey and really dig into the importance of this fish to the indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest. We have talked about lamprey before on the show, and they've got similar mouth parts, similar kind of shape. But I mean, if I had one in my hands, what would it actually look like and feel like?
1: This is Katrina's favorite question on the show.
0: Yeah,
3: my, my dream question here. Okay. If you have it in your hands, it's a fish. So it's a little bit slippery, right? Cotton gloves are helpful to pick them up and to hold them. Definitely like you would if you're working with a salmon. But lamprey, when I have picked them up in the past, just to check them out, they actually will wrap around your... arm or your hand. And so, yeah, I had a really touching moment with a lamprey once on the Coquille (laughs) River, just picking it up to look at it. And it wrapped itself around my arm and then just looked me straight in the eyes. (laughs) And I had a moment (laughs) with this lamprey. (laughs) And then I just put it gently back down in the water. (laughs) So that's what it's like when you're holding it. And how big are they? You know, it depends. Size can vary, but typically around, I would say between like one and like one and a half feet would be a good estimate for them. So you mentioned that mouth. Can
0: you explain kind of what that looks like?
3: Yeah. So the mouth is actually called an oral disc. It basically uses its mouth to suction on to different surfaces. Like if it's building a red, it will grab rocks with its mouth and move the rocks around physically with its mouth or it will use its mouth to climb up. And then on the inside are rows of teeth in order for it to hang on to things. The Pacific lamprey has three teeth up. On the main part, that's how you identify it because it's got three main teeth on the top part that come down. And then the rest of it is just more rows of teeth. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the pictures of lamprey that yeah. are suction cupped against the windows, like at Bonneville Dam or on the Umqua system where I am, Winchester Dam. And you will just see a suction cup and then just rows and rows of teeth. It's not exactly super charismatic with that mouth shot. So.
0: <laughs> what are some of the different names for lamprey any kind of local names or tribal names
3: yes you know each tribe has their own stories each tribe has their unique languages and so for the Cow Creek Umqua tribe our native language is Degelma. and in our language the word for lamprey is hadan
2: yeah and the four tribes that are part of Creekvic we speak a same language family and so the word is either assum or with an H, Hasu. I grew up on the Nez Perce Reservation and there's a little town just on the Snake River on the Washington side called Asoten. And that Asu stem at the beginning, it means place of the lamprey. So the town, there's a little stream called Asoten Creek. And it was really exciting a couple of years ago when the Nez Perce did their translocation program of outplanting some lamprey there because they'd been extinct there for almost 100 years, I think.
0: I think it's really neat. Kind of, I've noticed that in my travels across the U.S. place names, a lot of them do have fish associations with them. So you can really kind of get a sense of what was there and yeah, how important things were.
1: Isn't the eel river down there in California actually named after lampreys?
3: Yes, it is. Is eel a common name for the lamprey out there? Yeah. So um, if you talk with our tribal elders, oftentimes they will refer to them as eels. And so it is a pretty common name for them.
0: So, what's the relationship like between the tribal nations here and the Pacific lamprey?
3: So, I think different tribes have different origin stories, right? And for our tribe, we have an origin story of how lamprey lost its bones. And I can recount that for you all now. Please do. One day, the lamprey met the salmon. They started to gamble. The game was one of sticks as your father's play, betting on how many robes or furred switches the other holds. The lamprey, who was very lucky, won for a long time. Then he became careless. He bet recklessly. The salmon began to win. The lamprey lost all he had won. Then he lost all he had of wealth. When he lost everything, he bet his bones. Again, the salmon won. That is why, to this day, lamprey has no bones.
2: Ah, I like it. Uh, and then also, we hear lots of anecdotal stories from our elders about how, in some places, it was like the kid's job <laughs> to harvest a lamprey, because they would, like, it in... Major waterfalls where there would be salmon fishing over scaffolds and kind of dangerous conditions. They didn't want the kids to be up on the scaffolds doing that. So they were tasked with gathering the lamprey that would build up at the bottom of waterfalls oh, in cool. preparation for migration. And so we see lots of great photos of little kids with like gunny sacks that are just like walking along in the rocks and the pools and like picking up the lamprey because they tend to more migrate at nighttime. It's is a great thing for the kids to do. And they were contributing to the feeding of the tribe. They're considered one of the first foods, the traditional foods that are found in an area, thinking salmon, deer, huckleberries, roots, lamprey are among those. And traditionally, they're found in a lot of the same salmon-bearing streams. In fact, their range went a little bit further than salmon's because the Pacific lamprey are good climbers and that they could get past passage barriers that would prohibit salmon from going past them.
0: I guess from a nutritional standpoint, how do lamprey compare to, say, salmon or some of the other fish that run to sea and then come back to the rivers to spawn?
3: So lamprey are a very lipid-rich fish. They go to the ocean, so they have those marine-derived nutrients in their bodies they're a fatty fish, right? Traditionally, our people would catch lamprey and then we would dry them and have them over the winter because you could really have a good caloric intake if you had lamprey Mm -hmm. as a part of your diet. Also the oils that lamprey produce, those are used as medicine again, because of the lipids. So they were a really good source of nutrition for tribal members. And have you guys eaten lamprey? Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: I think that it, this really kind of it tells a broader story of the disconnect of the colonization of the area. We think that, oh, like it's unique to the tribes to use this resource. But if you look at the lamprey dishes in Portugal, parts of Spain, even in England, I mean, it's, th- it's a rich part of their cuisine as well. And so it's not like just an, a native thing to eat lamprey.
1: I'm wondering if there's any other specific cultural relevance that this fish has that's different than fish in general that you
3: guys can speak to. Lamprey weren't just a first food source for tribal people. They were also used as medicine as Mm. well. I've spoken with some of the tribal elders about lamprey oil being used to cure earaches. And for me specifically, I was gifted some dried lamprey from an elder. Tribal parents would give this to their kids when they were teething. And I said, well, I've got a daughter right now who is full on teething. And so I'll have to try it out. And so I did one day, she chewed on a piece of dried lamprey for probably 20 minutes and slept better that night than she had in three nights. So anytime I see parents that have teething babies, I'm like, you need to get that baby some dried lamprey stat. (laughs) Yeah. They're usually a little skeptical. Like, wait, first, what is that? But then, I mean, if you've ever met a parent who is going on five nights without sleep, then ultimately they're like, where can I get some?
2: <laughs> well, another kind of unique one was, my dad would tell us that this is what his elders would do, but you know how if you brush your teeth and then drink orange juice, how it's just like reacts in your mouth and it just makes the orange juice taste terrible? Well, a lamprey will affect the kind of the sweet receptors in your tongue. And so when they would go huckleberry picking, the parents would give kids like, oh, here's a snack before you go out and pick. And so they'd eat the lamprey. Then if you eat huckleberries right afterward, it's that same unpleasant reaction. And so they tended to get more huckleberries in the basket rather than in the kids' mouths. (laughs)
1: Oh, that's so smart. I love it.
0: (laughs) I would have liked to do that as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, we have you two on as guests, but we know there's a lot more tribes in this area. Could you kind of give us a picture for the geography of where these fish are and which tribal nations these fish are important
3: to? So the range of Pacific lamprey goes from Baja, California, all the way up basically throughout the Pacific Rim, Pacific Northwest, BC, Alaska, Kamchatka, all the way over. And so it's a pretty big area. And because Pacific lamprey don't home to their needle streams like salmon do, really it's a range-wide issue. And so you have tribes engaged all the way from California, all the way up through Alaska with this initiative. We have a lot of tribes in Oregon that are pretty heavily engaged, as well as Washington Idaho, we've got folks in California, and we're also learning more and more about Pacific lamprey in Alaska every day with the outreach efforts that are happening up there. The Columbia River tribes, especially, have been real drivers of lamprey restoration within the area.
2: The Yakima tribe is doing research on propagating them in a hatchery setting for kind of restoration work and outplanting. They produce something like 200,000 eggs per fish so if we were able to like effectively use those in hatcheries that would be a big improvement of our potential of restoration work to be able to produce them but as of right now it's still very experimental awesome
1: thank you i'm curious to follow up on that i'll address jeremy for this question because you work with the columbia river intertribal fish commission what is that commission what are the tribes that are part of it And then what is the working relationship between the commission and then like the state fish and wildlife agencies and even the federal ones like fish and wildlife or nymphs?
2: Oh, yeah, thanks. The Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission is made up of four member tribes, the Yakima, the Umatilla, the Warm Springs and the Nez Perce tribes. And they're the four tribes with treaty reserved fishing rights along the Columbia And they came together to kind of just coordinate their efforts as a fishery agency. And we work really closely with the states in terms of setting harvest allocations for salmon. And we do a lot of collaborations with them for habitat restoration work and whatnot. And uh, historically, we've worked quite a bit with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife for not only salmon, but also lamprey.
1: Okay, this is another classic guy multi-prong question. We've kind of mentioned that lamprey there there's some restoration that needs to be done. Maybe then I don't agree. Can we talk about some numbers? What historically were these runs like and what are we seeing today? And then also I want to tie that into this idea of harvest and Is it strictly the tribes and folks who can harvest and have special permission because of these, the cultural significance? Or can anyone go out and get a license to catch lamprey?
3: That's a really good multi-pronged question. I'll start with the historic numbers. So I can give you just a frame of reference from the Umpqua system. And then I'll let Jeremy speak to the Columbia, but for the Umqua, when they first started counting lamprey at Winchester Dam, which is on the North Umqua River, right around 1964, there were 46,000 lamprey that were counted in that year. And then if you flash forward to right around 1995, we had something like 15 lamprey that were counted. Dang. And so we saw a massive decline over the last five years or so. The count has been hovering a little over a thousand lamprey every year between a thousand and two thousand. So our numbers have rebounded a little bit, but nothing like what we saw historically. Jeremy, do you want to speak to the Columbia before we get into the second part of Guy's question?
2: (laughs) Yeah, historically it was numbered in the like literally in millions of fish, and even Bonneville Dam. 60 years ago, we would see returns of like 400,000 lamprey in the 30s. But then, as each new dam was built, it would just continue the decline. In fact, in 2012, lamprey passed Lower Granite Dam. And in fact, some of the years we have data gaps because the core just stopped counting them because it's like, well, you know, they're just gone or like they wouldn't oh, bother man. because there were so few. But good news is that in like last year, what's the biggest run uh, that they that Lower Granite had seen since it was built? And that was re- largely due to the tribal translocation program that, that okay. was getting fishing back into the rivers.
0: Uh, You know, you mentioned they're kind of the first fish. What's the timing of their migration in relation to some of the salmon species you see out there?
3: Pacific lamprey migrate upriver starting in kind of May, June, and then run through the summer. We're learning every day about the different life histories of lamprey. So we do know that some of them overwinter and then spawn in the late spring, early summer. The overlap is... For different species of salmonids, for example, they would be coming upriver at the same time that some of our spring Chinook species would be and some of the summer steelhead. And then when they're spawning, sometimes in winter steelhead spawning surveys, people will see lamprey spawning as well at the tail end of those surveys to later spring, early summer. And so that's kind of when they're in the river and when you'll see them in conjunction with some other species. Super
1: cool. I was wondering, you're talking about these fish, okay, they can climb and then get past some of these bears that salmon can't. Are they having any of the same issues with these dams? And also, what have these dams done to some of the areas? I know some of these falls get flooded. Are the access areas where you can harvest these fish the same as they were historically, or have those become more limited in recent times? There are several questions in there. So yeah, about yeah. That.
2: and the the fish passage around the dams, like not only the ladder system, but also the juvenile bypass system to keep the juveniles from going through the turbines were completely designed for salmon and the needs of salmon, their physiology, their behavior. And so generally the ladders, they flow too quickly with 90 degree angles because, you know, it's a man-made engineered design. And what the lamprey will do is traditionally, they will just attach to a rock build up some energy, burst forward, go to the next rock. But when they get into those ladders, they'll attach on the wall. As they're kind of inching along, they'll hit the 90 degree boundary and their suction cup will no longer hold on because it reached the edge and it'll just wash them back downstream and then the juvenile bypass systems since lamprey they're so ancient they don't even have bones they're cartilaginous fish so as the juveniles they just get sucked into the tiny holes into the grates that you know that you know, it's like nothing for a baby salmon to run into and keep swimming or get washed in, but sometimes they'll pull up those grates, and it'll just be like a solid mass of juvenile lamprey impinged in them. And so, oh. you know, it kind of hits them going down and coming back through the system. In recent years, there's been improvements to that. There's some of the dams have specific lamprey bypass systems that are engineered along the ladder that's just for lamprey and their climbing technique. So that's kind of some improvements that have been made that's heartening for that. And then also the just the spill over the dams during migration times because they can survive going over the spillway. It's just not going through these bypass systems for the juveniles. And then in, in regards to the waterfalls, one of the biggest areas in the Columbia Basin for harvesting lamprey is at Willamette Falls. And we kind of cheat. So because mm-hmm. that waterfall is part of a power plant that P- mm-hmm. Portland General Electric operates. And during the late spring, early summer, as the water level goes down, they'll put in these flashboards that divert more water to the hydro intakes, which dewaters the waterfall. It's just a fraction of what the um, flow is traditionally. And so we work with a power company and they give us the timing. And so that's actually when we schedule the harvest. So it's Mm. actually really safe because we only go up there after it's been dewatered. So it's still a pleasant day and we're like, oh, this is so cool. We're harvesting lamprey, but we're not risk of getting washed away.
1: yeah so the mouth i imagine i've seen them stuck on the windows up there at Bonneville. they're stacked up like cordwood and it's just you got all this water like jeremy was saying pushing them back so i'm wondering how hard is it if you're going off and harvesting these things to pull off that because it seems like they're on there pretty tight but yet you say that this is the kid's job so it can't be that hard so how hard is it i guess
2: Generally, like a sliding motion sideways is enough to kind of just like with a suction cup will can release it. Kelly mentioned how they'll wrap around their arm. And, you know, sometimes people that just uh, start working with them will panic when they actually attach to your your arm. And it's just like it, you can tell someone who's new versus someone that's experienced <laughs> because the new person will like panic and think they're going to get their blood sucked. Whereas some experienced one or the elders will be like, oh, and then just casually as if it's nothing just slide it off the end of their arm and so it's just funny it's like watch as people are learning and working with these animals even though they they're not going to like suck your blood they don't feed as an adult yeah. but if you do leave them on too long they'll leave a hickey and we've uh, we've had people learn that lesson the hard way as well <laughs> hey
1: you look like an olympic swimmer with those <laughs> cupping marks and everything <laughs>
0: For your respective tribes, what's kind of the idealistic kind of hopes and dreams for this fish and the future of this fish with how your tribal folks are interacting with it?
2: Well, I mean, I, I the overall goal could just be contained in the healthy, self-sustaining population numbers that could support harvest. To be able to continue our cultural connection to this food and this important First, food, but also in numbers that they actually can help serve their ecological purpose as well. They were evolved for here, they integral part of it, and we can't let them go away. Mm-hmm. And uh, But also, we don't want them to be continually dependent on humans yeah. just to reproduce. Uh, so the like, self sustaining. You know, if we can, if we can important. get them to boost back up to numbers and f- fix some of the problems, they can take care of themselves. But right now, there's a lot of stuff standing in their way.
0: How about you, Kelly, in terms of kind of hopes and dreams for Cal Creek Umpqua tribe of Indians and what they see for this fish?
3: Yeah, so I think... um Jeremy was spot on with that, right? We want healthy populations that are self-sustaining, that we can have a sustainable harvest on as well to really get that connection back to our tribal members. Because we have so few lamprey in the rivers, you know, you talk to our tribal elders and they remember them, but a lot of our tribal youth, some of them haven't even seen a lamprey. We do a lot of education and outreach about lamprey to our tribal youth and try to get them as much hands-on experience and with them as we possibly can. And so it's just being able to get them back and re-establishing that connection with a culturally significant species, a culturally significant first food source is really important. Um, but I'd love for us to be able to have a traditional harvest within our homelands again. We haven't because we've been so concerned about the population numbers being so low, but it's really important to have that connection. And so that would be my goal is to have that harvest again.
0: What can the average citizen in the range of these fish do to help conservation efforts? Or what can they be thinking about with their own personal choices that might help these fish or some of the other fish?
3: I think first and foremost, it's education and learning about the fish. Because I don't know how many times I've run into folks, You know, maybe it's a public tour or something else. And Somebody will say, oh, lamprey, aren't those, those horrible invasive things that eat everything? You know, they're thinking about blood lake attack of the killer lamprey, Mm -hmm. insert eye roll here. And so... I have to do this education with them. Like, well, actually, you know, Pacific lamprey are native. They're a really important part of the ecosystem. And let me tell you about them. Um, So I think the first step is just learning about them and understanding what they're doing. And then the more knowledge we have out there about what this fish is, the more lamprey kind of restoration enthusiasts will create out there. And so I think the way that we do it is through educating younger kids, Second of all is Northwest has been in a drought. We had that horrible heat dome event, we definitely had some fish die offs. And so I think just also being mindful about what's going on with our water conditions right now and our changing environment. And anything that you would do, um, you know, to help conserve salmon or water in our river systems is going to help lamprey too.
2: And I'll add on to that the importance of just continued research. Uh, historically, lamprey are very underrepresented in scientific research just because they, you know, all of the attention kind of goes to salmon or, you know, kind of more commercially important species. And they're just fascinating fish. But there's so much of their life cycle we don't even really fully understand because they, there's just never any will or funding for that. And uh, CRYFIC operates a fish genetics lab that was started was for salmon. But once the tribe started doing the translocation programs, we do a genetic sample of every single lamprey that is part of that. So we have this library of family histories now of all the lamprey in there. In fact, it was really good news last year when the first adult offspring of translocated parents was detected
0: coming from
2: Bonneville the amount of information that represents to be able to tell that we know its parents is Mm -hmm. that's unprecedented you know in in history to think that here we this particular lamprey we knew exactly when it was born we knew when it went to the ocean and who its parents were just by its dna so that level of using scientific knowledge and advances is really exciting for this field
0: Is there anything we're missing from this conversation that you'd like to tell folks listening about this fish or the
3: work being done around them? So I think one thing I would add is just for the restoration piece. Again, It's very similar like to the salmon story, right? There's no one silver bullet. It's a multi-pronged approach, right? For restoration. So with the Pacific Lamprey Conservation Initiative, if folks want to learn more about the initiative and about lamprey, it's pacificlamprey.org. And you can go there and learn all about the initiative and what's going on range-wide for Pacific Lamprey.
2: In the intro, you mentioned like just how ancient of a fish it is. That blows people away that they predate Trees, they predate beetles.
0: They're pretty amazing. Yeah.
2: We today are closer to dinosaurs than dinosaurs were to lamprey. They are really, really old. You know, it was actually my father, Ms. Purse who said, It's like, how do we let something that's 450 million years old go extinct? It's stunning. Something that's been here for almost all of life on Earth that we could kill it off in a couple of generations is so shameful.
0: I got the chills. All right. Well, thank you two for joining us Appreciate today. This it. Has been a great conversation. Appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the Pacific lamprey. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Ero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A. F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.